Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers, episode 20, The Smoke of Burning Gods. I'm Scatty, we have with us Brooke and Matt as always. Good evening. Toodaloo! <laughs> okay. This is Doubtfire? This is Doubtfire. Put it Anyone? in the notes, Brooke. Uh, uh, Alright, so uh, welcome. We'll be doing uh, kicking off uh, another, another review of uh, more Clash of Kings getting just deeper and deeper on a cock and uh this this, this week we'll cover davos one the first pov chapter from davos theon one the first pov from theon uh danny one the first pov in a cock from danny john two and aria four wow she's been a beast this book so far four chapters already that's chapters 10 to 14 according to a wiki of ice and fire and uh I am giddy to hear the new music that matt has cooked up because guys he doesn't share it with us early we hear it Almost basically when you hear it. So I'm excited. All right. So I keep saying I will, and then I never do. <laughs> You're just teasing us. You're a tease. Maybe Matt. because it's not recorded yet. Shh. <laughs> 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 All right. So uh, we are spoiler free, uh, as always, until the end of the podcast when we have a special segment called Davos After Dark. Uh, don't worry. Uh, one of Matt's special musical jingles will warn you, and uh, you'll be able to turn it off real quick. Uh, before we uh, start spoiling the, the series for you. Uh, and again, like always, uh, if you want to contact us, uh, suggest topics uh, for for the episodes or uh, things you want us to cover in Davos After Dark or questions or things that you think you understand that we seemed floundering on during our episodes, just reach out to us, davosfingers.com, email at wearedavosfingers at gmail.com, Twitter at davosfingers, or find us and like us on Facebook. Uh, we've got the iTunes reviews going too. Uh, we're just all over the place, so find us and, uh, and comment. Had a nice chat with two people today uh, on the Podbean site itself where you can leave some Facebook comments, so that was fun today. So anyway, uh, thanks to you guys for reaching out. Uh, having that conversation. So, uh, without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Matt, your episode, but my chapter. You want me to just get dive in, or you got anything else? I have nothing else other than wanting you to dive in. Davos. Eyes are crying from the unions in the hold. Save steady boy, save steady boy. Finger bones in a bag mean the truth will be told. Steady Davos, steady Davos. We love ourselves some Davos. So, Davos and all the other all others of prominence gather to burn the seven gods at Melisander's bidding. There are varying reactions from the crowd as the gods burn, uh, but it's clear most are heartily against it, including Davos. I guess I should tell you, it's not the actual gods burning, but fig- wooden figures uh, representing the seven gods, the mother, the stranger, the father, the warrior, the smith, uh, I forgot the others. Sorry, I'm just... The crone uh, and the maid. The crone and the maid. Thank you, Brooke, for diving in. But he knows that more important to his loyalty to these seven gods that are burning before his eyes is his loyalty to Stannis Barcolotharian, and he behaves as such, keeping silent in his stewing. Mel lifts her voice to the heavens and declares that the time for the return of Azor Ahai is now, indicated by the com- comet foretold in the legend. Stannis Botswanen is the hero who will wield Lightbringer, a sword of fire, and the darkness shall flee before him. Stan garbs up in (laughs) fire-retardant clothing and wrenches a sword of flame from the breast of the mother. He retreats from the fire, lets Mel finish her ceremony, and trudges back to the castle, leaving the mess of the sword, Lightbringer, in the ground. 
Davos makes his way to Gargoyle Inn. Gurm, don't worry, I named it for you since you forgot. Gargoyle Inn. And he meets Salador San, a Lysine pirate paid to serve Stannis Barlamanarian. He quenches his thirst for news and ale while Salador does the talking. Salador San is of the opinion that they could take King's Landing quickly and without complication. They've got very few people to even man the wall. But Davos asks about Renly, and San has to admit Renly is on the move too, and he's got a lot more men than Stan does. The topic is quickly shifted by Salador to Lightbringer, kind of taking Davos off his guard. Uh, he, Salador can, tries to convince Davos that this is not the real Lightbringer, uh, and we hear the full story of the original Lightbringer. We'll probably go into a little bit more on that. I don't want to do it here in the summary, but because of that original story and the differences, uh, Salador stands convinced this is not the real Lightbringer. But uh, from the end, Davos is summoned to Stannis' quarters to provide feedback on a letter that Stannis is about to send to all corners of Westeros. In a nutshell, it states, The children are bastards. These are the uh, Lannister Baratheon children. Uh, that he is the true king and that he wants everyone's loyalty. However, he fears that the message won't spread, that uh, they'll get delivered to maesters who will read it and burn it and not not spread the word. So he's going to have Davos and his sons sent around in ships to go read the letters aloud <laughs> to the population so that the world will hear of his claim. This is south of where they are at Dragonstone, north of where they are at Dragonstone, and even across the Narrow Sea, uh, to, uh, to Essos. Davos gives some answers, some, some, some feedback about this letter. He says, first of all, there's no proof of the incest. Uh, second, he doesn't think the common folk will approve of the way Stannis is using his new god uh, in his letter. They are attached to the Seven, and he doesn't think he'll win any favors or any love by talking about his new red god that Melisander's uh, put him up to. But Stannis replies that he must do this now. Without the people's love, nor the support that should be his by rights from his bannermen uh, in the Stormlands. He'll use what he has. That ships and the Red Woman uh, taking on the new god was kind of a requirement in order to get her support. And uh, besides, he makes an analogy and says, The old gods never did him any favor. Why not try his luck with a new one? Just like when he was a young boy, he had a hawk that never worked for him, and he was told to try out a new one and might have better luck. Good analogy. Pick a new religion. Let's get her done. And that's the end of the chapter. So, uh, I wanted to start with my love uh, for Stannis and his desire for absolute truth that comes out in the letter scene. <laughs> he, <laughs> he's very careful to make sure that Jamie, uh, the Kingslayer, is noted as Sir Jamie, the Kingslayer. He makes sure to strike the term beloved out of the letter when referring to his brother Robert because he loved him no more than Robert loved, loved Stannis. <laughs> and he comments to Davos that whatever the letter is, it is true. And that's important to him. And I just love it. He, he, kind, of, he kind of admits to Davos, eh, maybe the people aren't going to like it, but I'm writing the truth here, and that's important. What do you guys think of that? Well, I feel like he is a smart man. He... Um understands the power of communication. I don't think that going port to port reading off this proclamation is such a bad idea. I mean, the word is going to get out there. We already know that people love gathering in a crowd and, and hearing crazy people talk. But he needs to send one of those big bells with every ship to summon yeah, people. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. Or like, like 
serve food at the, <laughs> at the announcement. Well, if you have um, any money, you might do that. <laughs> but uh, I feel like in his intelligence, he is forgetting the fact, and Davos reminds him, that not having absolute evidence of this huge accusation of incest and and King Joffrey not being eligible for the throne is just like a dumb gamble. Yeah. And uh, he seems so caught up in his own convictions that this is wrong, that he, you know, the throne is his by rights, that he's forgetting that the truth is standing in the way of him serving the realm as king. So at some point he has to give a little and either work around that truth, the truth being the whole incest thing, or else come up with another provable reason why he should take the throne and Joffrey should step down. Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it's kind of, you know, there's no Jerry Springer here. Like there's no, there's no paternity test TV show that he can go on and like prove that these kids aren't legitimate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he argues that he can troop out Edric storm and, yeah. and prove to everyone that any get of Roberts is going to have, yeah. black hair and and uh and and resemble him greatly but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah genetics haven't really been established either so people can be, yeah. <laughs> cannot fall for that and also the lannisters are powerful throughout the land so people might rightly argue that the children would take after the lannister clan more so yeah, yeah just just Stannis, buddy, just step back for a second. Think about this. Think about how this is all going to play out. Yeah. I do want to note one more thing uh, about the, the going to the ports and reading the letters. Davos, because he can't read, uh, I skipped over that in the summary, asks for knights to be sent with he and his sons to to read in the squares because the knights will lend credence to the message and people will like to see a knight instead of, you know, Davos who looks like a normal guy. Okay, I just want to bring up, too, that as part of this whole reading in public square and sending knights, Davos asks him to send knights with him so it'll lend more credence to the message and everything. And Stannis says, I have a hundred knights who would sooner read than fight. <laughs> and it made me, <laughs> made me laugh out loud. Because a, a lot of the people, they don't want to go to war with him because they think he doesn't have numbers, right? And so he's just mocking them. But that's part <laughs> of Stannis's humor, right? Just very dry. He gets you know. it. But uh, one thing that is it that adds... Um... Well, actually, let me step back and, and address two points. Um, the, one that we guys were talking about reading it out loud and stuff. I actually think that it is kind of a good idea at the same time because it forces, in a way, the hand of the lords to act one way or the other. And then all of a sudden, by what they choose, they're held accountable to the small folk of their lands. Like... Um, that letter is going to be read to the, all the small folk and all the people in the towns and villages. So now they know that there's this Stannis guy out there. And so there's no fool in these townspeople now. If the uh, lords decide to side with Stannis, then they kind of know. And if they he decides to go with someone else, they don't know. So it kind of forces the lords in a way to act one way or the other. They can't just ignore the information. They can't – the maester can't throw the paper in the fire there's there's some sort of action that needs to be taken. Um, and if no action is taken at all, then then it's obviously a choice to not side with Stannis, I think. And then 
also, you know, we talked about, you guys made great points about Stannis not exactly thinking things through all the way and stuff like that, perhaps um, with some of these things and not being able to prove uh, the, that Joffrey's a bastard and stuff or that Joffrey's not eligible for the throne, I should say. But uh, another thing that kind of concerns me a little bit is does Stannis realize the implications of winning a war in the name of a religion that no one in Westeros supports? <laughs> how, how are all these people who he's supposed to rule over going to take to him going into all their churches and pulling out their you know, uh, statues and symbols that they worship and burning them all? You know, like he already knows they don't love him. And this seems like it will make them not love him anymore. I I agree with that. Although I'm not certain at this point that Stannis would even keep the God he's with now. He sounds to me like a completely hardly closeted atheist. And I think he's, he's, he's using the God now because he thinks he might benefit from it. If he takes the throne, he might just say, do whatever you want with religion. I don't care. But in getting there, as he's winning the throne, is he going into every sept and pulling out statues and stuff like that? My guess is he'll say it's not the priority right now. We'll do it later, and then he'll never do it. But I do agree. Uh, I I put in in my own notes, I put uh, Scott's going to love Stannis because of this, because he's definitely one of the first atheists we've seen in this world. (laughs) (laughs) Burn, gods, burn. (laughs) Well, he admits it at the exactly end. He, he stopped believing in gods when he wa- in any sort of god when he watched his uh, parents die out on the yeah. sea. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I find it interesting that that George never boldface says or has Stannis say, "I believe in no gods." He kind of said he stopped believing, like like stories of people who lose their faith, but like are kind of aware of a higher power, agnostics in a way, but not interested in you know, committing themselves to, to that faith. I almost feel like Stannis, as evidenced, is kind of waiting for a good opportunity and R'hllor is a good opportunity. So oh, absolutely. I agnostic instead of atheist. What he's interested in, and he admits this to Davos at the end of, of, of the chapter, is exactly back to Varys's riddle. He's interested in the illusion of power. He even says that to Davos. He says, I don't know about her God. I don't remember his exact words, what he says, but he basically says, I don't know about this God thing, but Melisandre has some sort of power and my people are afraid of her. Um, In fact, uh, in the chapter, he says, you'll notice he, when he's explaining this to Davos, he doesn't say anything about the flaming sword or being Azor Ahai or anything. He just says when she's around, even my bravest knights are afraid of her. So he's interested in the power that she somehow brings or the illusion of power. It's almost like he's letting her do things her own way as long as that illusion of power remains intact. Like, okay, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll walk and pull out this flaming sword as long as they believe that you have some sort of power. Yeah, for sure. I would agree with that. I would, But I would almost say it's a little less, oh, well, maybe it is using her, but I would kind of compare it to the same way that the leftovers of the Kalazar are still following Danny around uh, this 14 year old widow because they saw her step out of that fire. They saw the dragons hatch. They saw the dragons mm-hmm. um, breastfeed. That's a really cool comparison, Brooke, because, because I wanted to talk about this ceremony where he goes and gets the sword because, 
because, <laughs> because the Danny one is powerful. You're like sweating when you read through it. Like it's so, it's kind of so moving. But this one, I don't know. I don't know if either of you would have had this experience or not. When I was a young kid, you you like you're, you're playing basketball, or whatever. You're playing horse, or you know, I'll bet you twenty bucks I can make this shot or something, right? And you say, I bet you I can make this shot, and you're like thirty feet away, right? And they're like, okay, yeah, I bet you. And then you run up and you make a layup. That's what I feel like this scene is. They they were summoned down here to see Stannis go in and claim a fiery sword. And then they get there and it's like, okay, but we're going to like cover him with all this fire retardant stuff. And he's going to walk in <laughs> and he's going to pull it out and wave it around and then he's going to throw it in the ground and we're going to cover it up. It, it's like... It's it's like the side it's like the the nickel sideshow version of the Danny show, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, and it almost seems it's almost like George is trying to make it obvious to us that it's like B level special effects at yes, best. Absolutely, it's really bad. And <laughs> and two things about that, it says it says that both, well, it's, it's one thing two people, both Mel and Stannis are complicit in this. They're kind of lying to these people that they're trying to get to follow them of the power that's really involved here when it really does seem like... I mean, Stannis can barely stand it. As soon as he drops the sword and the flames are out, he's like, oh, that's enough, I'm going back to the castle, right? Like, he just kind of stomps away. It's like he can barely stand that he's even participating in this event. Do you know what I yeah, mean? That's what made me think that he's, he's... That's why I made that statement of it's almost like he's letting her do things her own way. As long as that illusion of power can remain. But he hasn't bought in 100%. That's almost disappointing. After her show in the prologue with the, the poisoning, you'd think that she could like up her game a little bit, add some fiery special effects. And, and I would like to give these lords a little bit more credit. They have to realize that some of this stuff is just weird. Like, if you're really Azor Ahai, why do you have to put on a cloak and this big heavy glove? You should just be able to go grab the sword. It's almost. I, well, I it's, wonder if, if if Stannis knows that maybe they're not going to buy it, but if he's like, eh, if they're going to follow me even after they see this sideshow, then maybe I've got really loyal people. <laughs> well, it's kind of weird. The original story of Lightbringer with Azor Ahai doesn't say anything about Azor Ahai himself being like resistant to fire. The guy builds a sword three times and kills his wife with the last one to temper the steel, and her soul binds with the steel and makes it a magical sword. But it doesn't say anything about him being immune to fire. I don't know where this idea came that he's got to like walk through the fire and do all this, unless it is just a show. I don't know where that came from. Stannis apologist, too. <laughs> I know what you're saying. I'm not apologizing uh, um, to Stannis. I... I'm, I'm, I'm blaming him for allowing himself to be complicit in a show that doesn't have anything to do with what the legend seems to promote. Right. And then I don't know if maybe the legend was, you know, uh, exaggerated over time. We know that these things happen, but the legend of the, of, uh, Lightbringer and Azor high, the one that comes out of the books from a or whatever, is that the warrior shall draw from the fire, a burning sword. Um, but it also doesn't say that they're fire resistant. So maybe he does have to throw on a glove to actually do that. My brother once, we were, uh, we were at a desert party in Arizona when I was in college, and <clears throat> we are all getting drunk. My brother was up visiting. He was still a senior in high school. Down visiting, sorry. Uh, and he, uh, 
<laughs> he became the wood bitch for the evening, which means we got him really drunk, and he was required to run around gathering wood, and got really hammered, and we had marshmallows we were roasting, but his his hand got covered in melty marshmallows. And he decided that it would be a good idea for him to just thrust his hand into the fire to melt the marshmallows oh, off. Oh, God. <laughs> Don't worry. Big Brother Scat caught it before he got too close. God. Oh, fine. my gosh. Yeah. Funny story. <gasps> but it reminded Matt's story of, of Azor Ahai reaching into the fire. Just I couldn't get that image out of my head. <laughs> yeah. Azor Ahai was obviously drunk, too, using his drunk logic. I was reaching and grab that. Will protect me. It'll be yeah. fine. Oh, that is like chilling. Ooh. Well, I feel we'd be. Uh, I know we're running a little short on time, but I feel we'd be a little remiss if we didn't talk about Davos a little bit. Yeah, his character. You know, our first impressions of being inside his head. Uh, what a guy! What a guy! Yeah, two two things really stand out mostly about him to me. First, he's totally about the family. All of the thoughts he has, like remember, you're. Your kids are going to grow up and be knights, and oh, they're not—they don't understand. They—they've been up jump too early, and they don't—they haven't had to live through it. Like he's always thinking about his kids with all the decisions that he's making. And two, he's extremely careful with his words. For all his talk about you know how he's just a, an ordinary man and everything, he's very good with his words. Very careful to choose the right ones that won't get him in any trouble. And those—those those are two of the things that I love about him. That and his blatant honesty. Yeah, I like how. Uh... Uh, you said it's all about the family. He kind of reminds me of like a first generation immigrant, you know, um, you know, they move to a new country and oftentimes they're kind of treated with scorn, kind of like Davos is by the other Lords. But in their mind, they're like, but you know what? My kids are going to have it better uh, than I did. And then their kids are going to have it really good, you know? And I kind of feel like it's the same thing with Davos. He's always focusing on that. And his kids who kind of came into all this with him, came into his lordship, they're kind of in between still. They're kind of trying to hide their past a little bit. Davos says they never focus on the onion in his sigil. They only focus on the ship. So they're kind of trying to shun off his past a little bit and where they came from. And they're focusing more on who they are now and where they're going. Uh, but then their sons, They'll have it really good because by then, hopefully, the Dov- the Seaworth name will be entrenched in lordship and stuff like that. No, it's it's interesting, and and he mentions that his humble beginnings are Flea Bottom, which we've had a really close look at. Flea Bottom, the same place that has produced gems like hot pie. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lamy green hands. Lamy green hands, yeah, and I'm certain a number of Black Brothers. Ari. So, Ari. So, yeah, it's uh, interesting. It, w- it was certainly a mix of circumstance, but also his own fortitude and and uh, yeah, personal and I, morality, I guess, that has brought him to where he is now. Well, it's, that's a. I can't believe I've never thought of this, Brooke. Thanks for bringing it up. What made him do it? Pity on the people that were starving in the castle? Did he see it just as an opportunity to upjump himself to knighthood? Why did he do that? Yeah, I, I don't know I've if never that, asked that question. I don't know if it actually ever comes up, so I'm not spoiling yeah. when I say I think he is just a nice guy. So pity for the starving people then. He might have been doing it uh, you know, with the hope of being on the winning side at the end. So like you said, maybe he not exactly hoping for knighthood, but maybe hoping to get into someone's good graces. Or maybe it was just business. I mean, he had a shit full of onions. 
And there was an island full of people with gold but no food, so it just kind of made sense, right? Right. All right. And, right. It, and if if they win, then good. <laughs> maybe he's got maybe he's got a, a client. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, I think Matt, did you want to move on? Yep. Let's move on to Brooke uh, taking on her favorite uh, uh, POV type stuff, which is looking at the Ironborn. She's gonna she take us the Ironborn Theon culture. One. Yeah. His daddy lost the war, so he's living in the north. Now he's almost stuck between being a Kraken and a wolf. Yes, the young Greyjoy, with a smile so sly, put an arrow through your eye. Yes, the young Greyjoy, make a lady scream and a wonder be a king. Yes, the young Greyjoy, loyalty speaks, but there's something there that rings. Yes, the young Greyjoy. Hey Matt, did you know that there's actually a service online? Where you can anonymously order a flaming bag of shit to be delivered to your nemesis's door. <laughs> I just want to make you aware of that. It's poop again. <laughs> Only helpful if you don't announce to your podcast that you're going to do it, Brooke. <laughs> I just, you know what? I'm, I don't want to follow through, but I want to make the threat clear. <laughs> don't put it out with your boots, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> Judas Priest Barber is one of those flaming bags again. Don't put it out with your boots, Tad. Don't tell me my business, devil woman. Call the fire department. This one's out of control. <laughs> Anyways, um, uh, before we get started, I'd like to quickly review what we know of Theon. So when he was 10 years old, his father, Balon Greyjoy, rebelled against the Iron Throne and had his ass firmly handed to him by Robert and Ned. In exchange for Balon's good behavior, Theon was made a ward of Ned um, in name, but uh, uh, more of a hostage in practice. So not sure what happened during those 10 years to make Theon the little dickhole he is today, but I imagine it was a mix of poor parenting during his early childhood and an attitude of defensiveness and arrogance to make him stand out from the younger Stark children. But as we've all read, he's a real piece of work. He's reckless, he's conceited, he's disrespectful, and uh, I'm making air quotes here, he's JP. So now Rob has sent Theon back to his homeland to treat with Balon. And Theon is technically Balon's heir, his two older brothers having died in the rebellion. Because of this, he is super entitled and expects Balon to send a ship to pick him up at Seaguard. But when none, no ships are waiting for him, when he arrives from Riverrun, he assumes that the ravens he sent to Balon were lost. He instead hires a merchant ship and uses gold to force the captain into sailing unsafe waters to see Pike, Balon's holdfast, from the sea. He also uses gold to keep the captain quiet while Theon steals the captain's cabin and deflowers the captain's simple daughter in it, keeping her as basically a bed warmer of sorts for the duration of the trip. And maybe we can talk more about what a total ass both Theon and the captain are later, or maybe we shouldn't because it'll just be a lot of ranting. <laughs> Anyways, the pike is super cool sounding, but also super ridiculous. Um, it's a holdfast on the sea, so Theon's ship has to land at a nearby town called Lordsport. Theon is all excited about being greeted with great fanfare, the long-lost son finally returned home. 
He's another POV that has a lot of italicized eternal monologue. And he's full of remembering landmarks and people from his childhood. Just like as sentimental as someone with Theon's attention span can get. He also notices that there are a lot of long ships in Lordsport Harbor. And the reader gets more clues about what Theon is really on the coast to do. And there'll be more about that later. So all these expectations and build up. And alas, the only person there to greet Theon is his uncle Aaron. I'm saying Aaron. How would you guys pronounce it? Same. Yeah, I say Aaron. Okay. Except I picture him as Christopher Lee. Good. Yeah, that's a good one. Except he's a lot younger than that. But I think of him as Christopher Lee. Nice. So, yeah, the only person there to greet Theon is his uncle Aaron, who in Theon's absence has become a fanatic priest of the drowned god who the people of the Iron Islands worship. He immediately rebaptizes Theon with seawater and makes Theon repeat the words of that faith. What is dead may never die, because apparently what is dead may never die, but rises again harder and stronger. And if this isn't isn't an apt representation of Theon's people, I don't know what is. It's pretty grim and not a little culty. I can't believe I skipped so many Iron Iron chapters in the past. Just buckle in, people, because it just gets more grim as we go. (laughs) So Aaron brings Theon to Pike, and Theon's put in guest quarters, not his childhood bedroom. He has to order servants to air out the place and bring him hot water, and when that comes, it's warm at best, and it's seawater. So these are people who wash themselves with tepid seawater that gives you more idea of just like how miserable they're making their own lives. So not a warm welcome, but Theon isn't discouraged. He puts on his best duds and a gold thug chain and finally goes to see Balon. No hugs and tears here. And Balon immediately calls Theon out for wearing jewelry that wasn't bought with iron. So women of the Iron Ireland's, may wear decoration bought with gold, but men can only wear jewelry taken for them corpses of men they've personally killed. And this is why they call it buying with iron, which I find super clever. You can either buy jewelry with gold or iron. It could be with blood too, but right. I like the irons. Yeah. Lots lots of lots implied. That's great. Pay that iron price. <laughs> So he rips the chain from Theon's neck and declares that he'll not have his son dressed like a female whore when he has a daughter married to an axe, whatever that means. Just lovely either way. But Theon rallies and pulls out the letter Rob sent with him, containing a pronouncement Theon gave Rob the idea for. Basically, if Balon attacks Lannisport and Casterly Rock by sea, Rob will give him a crown, making Balon king of the Iron Islands and Theon Lord of Castle Rock. So this was Theon's scheme, and from all of his internal hand-rubbing and plan-making about becoming king, you'd think that this scheme would be foolproof. But the unfortunate wording of giving Balon a crown causes a tidal wave of pride, and Balon announces that... Hold on. I am the Greyjoy, Lord Reaper of Pike, King of salt and rock, son of the sea wind, and no man gives me a crown. I pay the iron price. I will take my crown, as Euron Redhand did 5,000 years ago. So, no, he's not going to do Rob's dirty work for him. 
Also, he rightfully fears Tywin Lannister's big ball brain and knows that holding Lannisport is just unrealistic. So he tells Theon that they'll be plucking another ripe, poorly defended plum instead. He doesn't say it out loud, but Theon can guess. And actually, um, we can all guess just from Balon's whole demeanor of resentful grudge holding. Um, he blames Ned Stark for the deaths of his two oldest sons, Roderick and Maron. And Ned is the one who obviously turned his youngest son into a silk robe ponce. So instead of going south to join all of the fighting and try his luck, Balon is probably turning his eyes north. That's the end of the chapter. Yeah, and I lied. it says it's ripe and undefended. Yeah. Yes. It's, yes. it's kind so, of an obvious choice. Uh, but, you know, I, I struggle with this, with, with the Ironborn anyway. And, and this chapter does a pretty good job of talking about their culture. And, and Theon remembers the times when they would just reeve and take and murder and take things back for themselves. And they always just kind of come back to the Iron Islands. But they don't, they're not farmers. They're not, you know, like, I don't know what the, they do with the North. The North is just this huge place with trees and stuff. Like, what do they want with it? You know what I mean? It's all about <laughs> land, man. It's all about land. Yeah, but they wouldn't even really, I don't know. It's not this so much what the they British do with the land. So easily. It's just they, they want land. Land equals power. It's, it doesn't make a ton of sense to us, but that yeah. seems to be the reasoning behind everyone's <clears throat> taking of everything. Yeah. So I love the iron price, too. That's just a cool concept. You, you see somebody walking around town. They're wearing a cool pair of shoes. You're like, hey, who'd you kill for those? You know? That's exactly it. It's pretty cool. I've got, uh, got lots of interesting little quirky cultural things over in the Iron Islands. Yeah. For example, the concept of rock wives versus salt wives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's let's cool. Talk about, uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the concept of women being commoditized. Let's talk about the difference between human beings and commodities. I'm not oh, touching that one with a 10-foot pole. Yeah, I'm worried about what I'll say. No, I'm just teasing. Um, this is, this mm. actually is a good opportunity for you to speak up, Matt. I think you come from a position. <laughs> now I know where this is going. Be a religious position where you might have an opinion on this. Oh, I assume gracious. that... That everything down in Salt Lake City is exactly like the TV show Big Love. Right, it is. <laughs> uh, do we need to do we do we need to let Matt set the record straight? Because we have people from all over the world listening to this cast. I yeah, I checked I, the numbers today. Do we need do we need him to explain the mainstream Mormon Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, does not practice polygamy? Done. Oh, okay. Did at one time. Do not. Did at one time for a long, long. Does time. not now. Any group calling themselves Mormon uh, that practices polygamy is an offshoot of of the uh, main. We'd call it the mainstream Mormon Church. Ah, but okay. we can still talk about it. It's fine. <laughs> but they do exist. If you're if you know what you're looking for, you can find the compounds around Salt Lake City. They're not so much in Salt Lake City, but hidden away, maybe. Well, in the suburbs. Sure. Maybe we'll do a little scavenger hunt sometime. Yeah, we could do that. <laughs> we'll just shout, sister wife, in the middle of Walmart and see who turns their head. <laughs> oh, so many okay. comments. Uh, so, <laughs> how, however, I don't, I don't think uh, even, even that practice is a fair comparison for what these people do. 
no, it's pretty, it's pretty awful. I mean, one. It's almost just like having a slam piece, right? It's Yes, but they are, I, I'm, well, I should have written down the passage, but when Theon is reminiscing about days of old when you know, Ironborn could just take whatever they wanted, mm-hmm. that included salt wives. Yep. So it's not like <laughs> there's it's a like lot having of, a girlfriend. it doesn't sound like there's a ton of consent going on. Right. Well, yeah. typically exists with a side piece. I, I think it's embedded in their cult, the, just a disrespect towards women is just, it seems just embedded in their culture. I mean, even the bit on the boat with the girl, uh, there's a couple, um, you know, he <laughs> makes her pleasure him with her mouth so that he doesn't have to listen to her mindless prattle. When she, when he's yeah. about when he's about to explode, uh, he holds her head so that Ugh. she can't move. I mean, there's just, there's a whole healthy lack of disrespect, or sorry, complete disrespect uh, toward toward females in general, at least from Theon, and I don't know whether you can extend it to everybody or not, but given the culture and what we know about about the Salt Wives, it seems like it's not too far of a leap. No, I, I agree. I find it very difficult to read chapters where the point of view character is so distasteful, and that might have something to do with my initial just avoidance of the whole Iron Irons thing, Iron Islands thing. Theon is just a terrible kid, like almost irredeemable. Yeah. And it's funny because in a game of Thrones, I almost kind of liked him when we weren't inside (laughs) his head, when we were only seeing him from like Catelyn's point of view, he seemed like kind of a smart alecky kid, but cool enough and everything. And then you get two pages inside of his head and you're like, this guy is a loser. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's I, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to 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 sympathize with him. Yeah. And and I you have to wonder how much of his personality is born from his 10 years in the north. Like had he stayed on the Iron Islands and been brought up as the only son of Balon Greyjoy, would he have been as hard and grim and 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 death obsessed as his family? Or would he have kept his sense of humor and his entitlement and his disgustingness like how much of it is learned and how much of it is inherent that's a good question it's a good question yeah one thing i did was was thinking about is it seems that there's a ton of identity confusion here underlying all of this he's constantly bouncing back and forth between stark Greyjoy, comparing the two what his life was like then what it's like now da 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 and i almost wonder if he's covering up some of that confusion he's feeling with acting the way he does yeah Hides it behind it. smiles and women and, and everything. And, you know, he's like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, he can almost feel himself becoming more of a Stark over these 10 years. So in his mind, he's like, oh, I know that, you know, back home we took salt wives and stuff. So I've just got to be the, like the jerkiest guy to women. And so he like overdid it big time to try to like prove to himself that he's still a Greyjoy. But all the while he's becoming kind of a Stark too. And he, it's almost like he's constantly struggling with the two. Mm. yeah that's mm. but i think they're definitely i'm not going to give him uh all the credit and say that all of that was due to that i think some of it might just be inherent and he's just kind of a, a bro a jerk so i will say so i'm not i'm not a fan but my my heart went out to him a little bit a little mm-hmm. bit mm-hmm. when when you go home to some place where you know you gotta remember he's been away from any anything that he associates 
with as part of himself for 10 years. And he's going to go home, no boat, nobody really there to greet him except a guy that doesn't want to talk to him at all. His father doesn't want to doesn't isn't showing any warmth. They don't even put him in his room. Like you know, did he need to be kicked to like get knocked down a few pegs? Absolutely. Right. But in the balls repeatedly, <laughs> hot pie style. <laughs> I, I just totally I, turned black. Man, it just it's I, I felt for him a little bit, you know? But at the yeah, same time you're too. like, well if Balon had showed up, it would have just been an ego boost and have been through the roof. So sure. I don't know if there's any winning really with this kid. <laughs> Well, like when I came home from Brazil after two years, boy, my religion's coming up a lot already tonight. But, uh, you know, there was like my whole family and all my friends were waiting at the airport with signs and stuff like that, welcoming me home. And we went home and my mom had gotten my favorite food. There was like pizza and Mountain Dew and all sorts of good stuff and donuts. I really wanted donuts. They don't have donuts in Brazil. Um, Yeah. Imagine that. And like I like walked around on carpet, my bare feet, and it felt so good. I hadn't felt that in two years and stuff. I can't imagine, you know, coming home after ten years and uh, having no one at the airport. <laughs> like I have to find a taxi to take me home, or my weird uncle comes to pick me up, and he's the only one that shows up. Like I would have just cried. And you, and you end up fucking the cab driver on the way there. <laughs> In the mouth. <laughs> Did I take it too far? You can never take it too far. Anyways, oh. Brooke, what were you going to say? Oh, Bring us back, buddy. timing. <laughs> Can't remember now. <laughs> oh, yeah. I liked how um, Balon, at the very end of the chapter, when Theon is like, you crazy old git, you can't <laughs> sit on the throne. You're going to be knocked out by whoever the victor is. And Balon was like, well, at least you're not a craven. And kind of like side grinned at that. Like he enjoyed Theon's gumption. Like maybe there is hope on the horizon for his son. Well, I was kind of wondering if he's being a jerk just to kind of feel Theon out. Oh, totally. Totally, yeah. I mean, I think he's a a jerk anyway. Seeing how he would respond. Yeah, he's overdoing it for sure. For effect and and to to test him. He's certainly challenging Tywin for father of the year. So. Sorry. And you fuck the cab driver. <laughs> In the mouth. <laughs> Just to go back a step, Matt, that was a great analogy, though. It was really good. It helps put, give I, a I thought more sympathy Scott's for this. I made it even better. <laughs> I apologize to our listeners for taking it even further into the gutter than ever. I think that's a new low we've sunk to, or I've sunk to. Just, just a recorded new low. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else you want to cover with uh, Theon? I'll say that the the shape of the Iron Islands and how things look there and stuff, Theon's quarters and all that, des- description of everything, it really, to me, makes like being a hostage of the Starks like a dream come true, like a Caribbean cruise for 10 years compared to <laughs> what they live on in Pike. So. Yeah. It does kind of make you wonder, like, why don't these people leave? Mm-hmm. It seems just like a terrible environment. I, I wonder that about people in our world, too. Just They're so prideful, right? They just go somewhere else, man. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's not always an option. But It isn't. It isn't always. They, yeah, for sure. They, from the, from the, the quick peek we got at the Drowned God worship, it sounds like 
the more you suffer, the closer you are to God. So yeah. you're doing a, a bang up job. Which is also another very common religious theme. Yes. Mm. In some places. So. Yep. Yeah. That's um, an early Christian thing. Poverty is, you know, next to godliness, right? Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. were, you know, throwing themselves at swords and lions trying to be martyrs because the more you suffer, the closer you are to God and everything. But, huh. Yeah. Anyways, uh, ending this on a down note, just like Theon ends it on a down note, I guess. It's an apt way to end this chapter. Well, Theon <laughs> ends it in the mouth. We all know that. <laughs> all right. Scad, why don't you <laughs> take us... Through Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, I will. Silver hair and purple eyes always on the go. Kicking it with the dragon kids and Jorothy. And oh, she knows just where she gotta go and won't be Tyrion. Look how Westerosa comes Daenerys Targaryen. Danny, <laughs> kicking or Sir Jorah now. So she says to her Kalisar of roughly 100 of uh, old, sick, dying uh, men, boys with no braids. Uh, and, and and some women as well, says that they must follow her comet. Uh, fortunately, that comet happens to point in the only direction that's really available to them, across the Red Waste. They're surrounded by other cows in the Lazarine who would certainly not allow them to live uh, in their, their small merry band. I suppose it's more like a ragged band at this point. Uh, so they follow the comet across the Red Waste. It's an unforgiving land with little food and less water. An old toothless man dies first, a horse slaughtered to send him to the dying lands. Others follow. They run out of food and start eating their horses. Um, live ones, right? Slaughtering the ones that are alive and eating them. Uh, and even more perish. Her dragons thrive, though. They're eating seared horse meat in excess of their body weight daily. Uh, she named them. She named them after those lost in her life. Rhaegal, after Rhaegar, her brother. Viserion, after Viserys, her brother. And Drogon, after Drogo, her husband. And she is fierce about protecting them from anyone who would do them harm or take them. Uh, on the way, Dorea grew sick and died uh, in her embrace. She's no longer the beautiful woman who taught her the secrets of lovemaking uh, and, and dies uh, a shell of her former self. They trudge on, though, with no end in sight, a third of their number now deceased, when her outriders return with a report of a city. The city turns out to be empty, and they filter in, despite fears of godlessness and ghosts. They find fruit and water inside, and Danny even thinks they could get things to grow again if they chose to stay. At the very least, though, they can count on this place to regain their strength. While they're regaining their strength, Danny asks Ser Jorah to tell his story. She learns that his second wife fell in love with him at a tourney after he won her favor, and really her hand, in marriage, by vastly outperforming his, ex his expectations in the tourney. But she came from a wealthy family, the High Towers of Old Town. Uh, can talk about that on the map in a bit. And was, she was used to the finer things in life. He couldn't keep her happy uh, and went broke trying. Uh, he comes from Bear Island that has, as he puts it, lots of bears and trees, but not much else. So in order to try to keep up her lifestyle, he's caught trying to sell poachers into slavery. And rather than face the music, he flees with his wife on a boat for Essos. Uh, she ends up leaving him in lease for a wealthy businessman. She ends up being a concubine. So that is the sad and woeful tale of Jorah. And at the end, she also finds out that Jorah loves her. 
which she considers but dismisses. She can't imagine anyone entering her but her son and stars, Drogo. But she does vow to get him home to Bear Island, which he has talked about fondly. The next morning, she changes, charges her blood riders with striking out to find civilization, each of them in a slightly different direction. Two come back empty-handed, but Jogo has found a city, Karth, and three of its curious citizens that want to meet the mother and her dragons. And that is how the chapter ends. So, it's a, it's, it's mostly a, a bit of a downer chapter. Uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, Lord of the Rings type walking and stopping and walking and dying and walking, uh, <laughs> but through the red waste instead of through the lush, uh, lush lands of, of Middle Earth. I wasted on cross country. We dwarves are natural sprinters. Very dangerous over short distances. But some juicy stuff there at the end with uh, with Jorah learning a little bit more about him. But I kind of I kind of came away from the story respecting Jorah a little less. He's kind of dumb. <laughs> like like he couldn't see that that relationship wasn't sustainable early right. on. Right. Yeah. It also sounds like the girl's kind of awful. Like she was. So on his end, well... he's this cloying, dying to be loved. You can kind of picture him like. Are you okay? Are you okay, my love? Are you happy? Are you okay? And she's just kind of mm. seems like this snotty brat that nothing's ever good enough for, and she probably resents him for taking her away from the life she had. I don't know. I I want to. I feel like I, I read this to... in Pride and Prejudice or something at one point. I feel like we've read this with every strong male character in this book. Uh-huh. <laughs> We've all been cuckolded before. I want to know why Hightower agreed to the marriage in the first place. Was he just caught up in Jorah's success and was yes. like, "Yeah, marry her"? Like he had to know. Like I'm, the Hightowers are a wealthy, well-known family. And yeah. he's going to agree to a marriage. Usually, you know, marriages are done strategically often. Oh, yeah, marry this guy up north in Bear Island. Like, how does that strategically help the High Towers? It, it just seemed really weird that he would even agree to that in the first place. Yeah. Mm, like, maybe there's something more to that story. I, I didn't get know. a chance to look at their family tree. Maybe he just had a bunch of daughters. You know, <laughs> he's like, just he, like, he's yeah, take marry her, him off, whatever. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it seems. I agree with you. It, seems, it could have been. It seems kind of odd. It could have been. He was caught up in the moment of Jorah's success and everything. You get caught up when you're in the moment of something. Like, you ever been to a concert when uh, you know, in like a band you haven't seen before, maybe like the opening act or something, and they put on a really good live show and everything. And so you go and you buy their CD and you're listening to it on the way home, and you're like, is this the same band I just watched live? Like, well, it's all, it follows one of my rules of music, which, Matt, you might not appreciate, but live is always better. No, I it's, totally appreciate that. My why? favorite band's the Dave Matthews Band. It's why I kick myself uh, <laughs> that I don't go to see more live music, because it's just better live in general. Yep. So, you know, you get caught up in that moment and yep. maybe that's what happened with this guy. And he's like, wow, he's a really cool warrior. He's going to do great things. Yeah, marry him. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Hey, Scad, you mentioned in Jorah's telling of this tale to Danny that he sold poachers to slavers to yeah. pay for his wife. Yep. But he actually doesn't admit that to Danny. He says, I did something too shameful to even admit. And I wonder if he had told her at this point, considering Danny's stance on like 
slavery um, after experience with the mm. Dothraki and and the land people. Yeah, if she mean, would have just like hmm. kicked him to the curb right there. I don't know if you guys sent him out to the red waist. Maybe I spoiled that and I should have known. Oh, no, no, no. We already knew that about him. No, we already knew that, but she good. doesn't know that. I knew I knew about yeah. it. Did he, did he say it? Just He didn't say it to her in Game of Thrones, but but we were told of no, it? I think Ned... Ned's yeah, I think Ned's it, Eddard's okay. talking Ned's about it with somebody, yeah. That's right. Or, okay. or maybe it's Jor talking to John. I don't remember either. You're right, though. He does not yeah. tell Danny that. It's just something I put in my summary because I knew it. Um, he does not tell Danny. Thanks for pointing that out. Well, I'm I'm not like trying to catch you up. No, yeah, you're you're, you're pointing out that it might but have been a I think that's a good her. point. Yeah, yeah. yeah that could have been, been like a major hey. deal breaker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's kind of yeah. a beggar. She, beggars can't be choosers at this point, though. <laughs> you're my best fighter. Get out. Yeah, true. Oh, I uh, thought of a I thought of a great song of the podcast potentially for for Jorah right now. Have you ever that? heard of the band Delamitri? I think they're I think they're biggish over in the UK or maybe we're in the nineties, but they've got a great song called Not Where It's At. We'll put a clip of it on here. But uh it's a classic song about not being good enough for the girl you want. And he's like, But the one girl that I want ain't easy to please with what I've got. And now I think of that whenever I read about Jorah. <laughs> that song Absolutely. comes playing in my head. And now I have where it's at, two turntables and a microphone in my head. By Beck. Yes. <laughs> yes. So thanks for that. Where it's at. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great, great uh, use of that song to point it out. I, I, she was that, pretty sucky. Yeah, Lanes yeah. was pretty sucky. Yeah, but you, you know what else about Jorah that that I got from that story? He sounds way less bitter at Ned here than he did before. In Game of Thrones, when he was talking to Danny about this, she she says to him, "She's like, you hate him, don't you?" <laughs> and here he just kind of says, "I had something coming to me, and I ran from it." Yeah, and, right. He seems way less bitter about it here. It's interesting. It kind of reminded me of like a little kid. Like he finds out Ned's coming. Edward Stark's coming. Run! <laughs> it's just, okay, maybe it's not that funny. I thought it was funny. It was funny. I have to go on mute because I sniffle. Uh, I laughed. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for no, that. It's, well, it's, it's funny, but it's also smart. I get out of the way too. Ned yeah. is yeah. driven. Yeah. Was driven. It it certainly speaks to Ned's reputation that he mm-hmm. was renowned for uh, being rather stern in his justice. Yeah, everybody so, hates him. One more thing on Jorah before we move on, because I want to talk about dragons. Uh, Creeper Award nominee. Maybe he's a little bit on the lower totem pole, but dude's pretty old, and Danny's still fourteen. But I guess you know you're in a a group of sixty six people now. What have you got to lose? But uh, <laughs> Creeper Award nominee to Jorah, putting him, submitting his name. Well, I, you know what? I'm, I would probably be the last person to jump to his defense. But he's handling it really well. He is not inappropriate with her. He is very protected of protective of her. This is the first time that she's really picked up on the fact that he might be in love with her. 
Like he's not, he's not, he has creepy thoughts for sure. For sure. He's taken it way over the line in his head, but he's not acted on it out front. He's, he's in the friend zone and he's, he seems to be okay. being there for now. Yeah. But what does he, she asks him what she looked like and there's a million answers he could have given. And he looks back at her. He's like, kind of like you. She looks like you, baby. (laughs) It's kind of like, Oh, that's a little creepy. Can I win you in a joust too? Yeah, I would say his reasoning when he said that was probably just to to please Danny, but it obviously was interpreted differently. Well, at least by me. <laughs> like like old men giving young women compliments, they just kind of want to make them feel special. They're not necessarily trying to get in their pants. Yeah. That's how it works, P.S. <laughs> okay. Hopefully. All right. <laughs> It doesn't work like it did with Theon. Like, can't just take a salt wife. All right, let's go to dragons. Uh, who is your favorite dragon? I don't know yet. Uh, I mean, I've got a doon, 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 doon. But, I thought uh, we already had so this far. discussion that when we cosplay the dragons, the three of us. Oh, yeah, let's reveal that. Oh, we had the discussion. Regal. We didn't have it on the cast, though. Okay, but we did discuss this. We Matt's did discuss. Viserion. And you're Drogon. No, I'm Rhaegal. What? No, I was Rhaegal. I was the green one for I sure. I was the green one. Wait, what? Damn it. Wait, did I say Viserion? I don't want to be the one who's named after Viserys. Did I say that? Almost. Uh, I'm going to have to go oh, back to see if this crap. is an email. <laughs> yeah, We've got to find this. <laughs> this was from a conversation. Everybody's like, why are they talking about this? We were talking about maybe going to a, a con of some sort, uh, potentially the, the Song of Ice and Fire specific con someday and uh and and uh, cosplaying this but then matt and i said well we don't have any skills to make costumes we'll probably fail but anyway. right especially dragon costumes yeah i was just it was a nice some foreign headbands and some cool eye makeup yeah <laughs> keep it Still low a, effort high low return effort. yeah well uh, what are your what are your thoughts on the on naming one of the dragons viserion i totally get Rhaegal and drogon but Viserion kind of almost has, you know, a negative connotation to me. Yeah, she kind of, she kind of explains that away by saying his this dragon will do what he could not and mm-hmm. restore the glory of of our house to Westeros, right? So it's kind of like a, you know, what like Vis- what Viserys could have been. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, a little bit. Mm. Yeah, but, I wonder if she'll ever regret it. Regret it. Jeez, I don't know. <laughs> I guess we'll Oof. see. Ooh, but we got a good reveal um, where she says we talked a lot about, you know, how the dragons came about and all that magic and stuff. And she tells us at least her interpretation of it. She says uh, they had been born from her faith and her need given life by the deaths of her husband and unborn son and the and Mary Mazdur. Yeah. So uh, see, I have a note here uh, to, to bring it up. Uh, a mea culpa. I'm full of shit. I said it had nothing to do with the blood magic of, at all uh, in one of those end Game of Thrones chapters. I pat myself on the back when I'm right about shit, but I'll also call myself out. I just want the, the listeners to be aware of that. So she directly states, yeah, that they, that they came from those sacrifices. I'm interested, Matt, what you think of, or Brooke, what you think of came from her faith. Her faith in what? Her faith in, uh, I would see it as as her faith in in almost a savior type situation that even in this hopelessness or this seeming moment of hopelessness, there's still some sort of hope that things can go right. Uh, and, and then obviously she needed it. But 
Um, but yeah, what do you think, Brooke? Oh, I'd say her faith in herself. I mean, throughout all of Game of Thrones, she was always, I'm yeah. the blood of the dragon. Uh-huh. I am strong. I am a Targaryen. Very so good. I like Faith that. in the dragon blood, too, maybe. The, yeah. the, fam- the, the magic of the family. Yeah, but, but yeah, I, I'd say it could go either way. But this shows us that it wasn't just an ordinary fire that could have hatched the eggs, right? Like, there were two things that had to go into it. One was the deaths of the three people she mentions, and the other was a certain amount of work on her part, need and faith, or specifically called it. Well, I I will, I I called myself out and said I was wrong, but I will say that's her impression of how it happened. And that's what I was going to say, Scat, is you need to not beat yourself up too much because if anything we've learned is that these POVs and these POV characters are not perfect. And sometimes their interpretations are just that, interpretations. They may not always be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though it is a pretty common theme in fantasy novels that magic comes from intent. And mm. she had a lot of intent. Mm-hmm. Yep. Maybe not laser focused on hatching eggs, but there was belief there for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And and just for the record, I never said there wasn't any magic involved, just that I didn't think the blood magic was a part of it. I very much right. believe in the Targaryen side of the magic. Anyway, we can move on. Yeah, I was going to remind you about you being wrong. Thanks. I'm Thanks. glad you brought it up yourself. We it's try to better. whenever we can. Just, you know, we're, <laughs> we're constantly backbiting at each other. Like any time we can <laughs> cut the other one of the other two down, we try to. Keep Look, a list carved this right is a into lesson my arm I a long so I can refer time. to it whenever. <laughs> this is a lesson I learned a long time ago in business. Before anybody else can call you out on anything, fall on your own sword. Because then they sure. just pity you and... We're like, you know, no, Scott, no, 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 no. You weren't that, that wrong. It's way better that way. Take, take, the their am, take their ammunition away, and they got nothing to say. It's better. <laughs> well, I've mic, gotta... Keep the mic for yourself. Just hold on to it tight. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys, but one thing to remember, and I think this is something we can all take with us through the rest of our lives, is, is a little bit of Dothraki uh, wisdom here, is that no man should live longer than his teeth. Mm. Remember that? Live by it? Just uh, great stuff. Great stuff. I agree to those no, terms I... in that world, not in ours. <laughs> I thought it was a I great actually, line. I have a death pact with someone very close to me that if either of us ends up unable to use the washroom by ourselves, we'll help each other out. <laughs> That's the limit. If I'm ever in a diaper, like, like not depends. I'll wear those. That's cool. But like serious diaper, like full-time nurse, it's not worth it. They'll come over with a, with a throw pillow and help you out. (laughs) They'll, they'll, they'll be the Danny to your Drogo. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I just am imagining you in a diaper now. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the problem though. It's, this is actually a thing and it's called a heroin pact. And so you, take care of the other person by ODing them on heroin. Mm. Here's the biggest issue. Where do I get heroin? Where are you going to get heroin? <laughs> you mean with all those contacts you have in the Calgary oh, yeah. underworld, Brooke? You oh, couldn't yeah. find somebody. I'm super connected. <laughs> okay. You're like the Jesse Pinkman of Calgary. This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed. Bitch. That must be a Breaking Bad reference that I'm not getting again. Good. You got the Breaking Bad part, at least. Yeah, that is good. Yeah, it's the Asian gangs who run the drug market in Calgary. So I'll I'll look there. Start there. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, good good chat on Danny. Mm-hmm. Um, Brooke, yeah, you're on John, right? Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles bloom like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf He's John Snow a quick, a quick John chapter. This was like a, a quick breather in the midst of these long, lumbering chapters that we've had yeah. so far. It's like we get a little, ha ah, with John really quick. Yeah, I turned the page and I was like, what? It was like, a, com- it? It was like a commercial. Yeah. It was. It was a little shorty of a chapter. So um, John is riding with 200 other Black Brothers, including the Lord Commander, in search of Benjamin Stark and the other rangers who haven't come back from the haunted forest. And uh, they've hit the fourth wilding village in their journey called White Tree, named after the huge weirwood tree in the middle of it. And uh, it should be noted that the moniker Village North of the Wall is an overstatement. White Tree is only four one-room houses big. Whatever the case, the place is completely deserted. People, animals, furniture, everything and has been for probably a year from the evidence left. So Lord Mormont tells John to tell Sam to send a raven to Master Amon, telling him about the empty villages. Sam is actually doing pretty well on the journey. Uh, They gave him a workhorse to ride, so it's big enough to carry him. Just, Just in case you forgot, Sam's super fat, and George wants to remind us. And he's getting progressively less afraid the further they go, unlike the other Black brothers who know how unnatural the nearly empty forests are. Um, he's actually freed up so much time from not worrying that he started teaching the ravens in his care how to talk. Adorably, the first word he's taught them is snow, which says a lot about Sam's affection for John and his comfort level with their friendship. I kind of think of it like... You can be polite to anyone, but if you really like someone, you typically show it by making fun of them. And that's what Sam's doing here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is kind of a filler chapter in my eyes, except for two interesting things. One, inside the mouth carved into the huge weirwood tree in the middle of White Tree Village, the Black Brothers find charred human remains. John pulls a skull out of the maw of the mouth carved into the weirwood tree and remarks that he can feel the power coming off of the tree. And what's really interesting is that the bodies in the tree appear to have been burned well inside the weirwood tree. So not like burnt bones placed in there, but the fire was going on in the mouth of the tree. And granted, it's a huge live tree, You'd think a fire inside of it would do more damage, if not burn the whole tree down, but no. Still there and thriving. So second interesting thing is that we meet Dolores Ed, who is great. Yay! He's a dour dour black brother with a good sense of humor. And at one point he tells John that he was born in a house like the abandoned, sod-roofed ones in White Tree and calls those the Enchanted Years. (laughs) I find the them best just of really times, the worst of playful. times. Yeah. He's like the Eeyore um, of Westeros. Totally. He got to sleep on some straw under a roof. Enchanted years. <laughs> uh, 
anyways, that's pretty much the chapter. Um, I enjoyed meeting all the Black Brothers mentioned, and it sounds like Mormont kind of took the cream of the crop on his ranging. And we have discussed this before, but how smart was taking 200 of your best men? Yeah. Oh, I just feel like this is just going nowhere good. Right. Well, it's um, it's certainly I don't think it's it's what he expected. Uh, You know, this this chapter, it's hard for us to play coy because we know what's going on. But this chapter is really about a mystery. Where do these people go? And if you're reading for the first time, it's it's a it's a it's a big mystery. They would have expected to run into people by now, to be getting Mm. questions answered. If you know what what the answer to the mystery is, then it's it's a far less intriguing chapter. Like Brooke said, there's there's not not a ton in it. The tree thing and the Ed thing and a couple other small things. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think I think they're surprised. I think they're stunned actually that they haven't run into people yet, and that's what we're supposed to get out of this chapter. I think. But at the same yeah, time, I- it's also something that they've been dealing with for a long time. Remember, that was the very first thing that we read in these books is uh, Waymar Royce out there trying to find out where all the wildlings are and stuff. Yeah, but they didn't get back to tell him. No, they didn't. Yeah, something weird is definitely going on because it sounds to me like the majority of the population of the wildlings stick closer to the wall just because it's more south and you can grow more food and hunt more animals and et cetera, et cetera. So if they're not along the wall, along that sort of border, then where are they? Have they gone north? Like it's, I, I can see where the Black Brothers are coming from. Just village after village empty. What the hell is going on? And Jorah has to, or sorry, Mormont has to sort of like console uh, John at one point, very near to the end of the chapter. John's like, I really hope that we find Benjen. And Mormont's like, don't worry, we, we'll have 300 guys in a couple of days, it's going to all be good, it'll be fine. And I'm just wondering, in his mind, what he's expecting. Yeah, I, I wonder if they, if in the back of many of their minds, including Mormont's eyes, mind they're expecting others, but they're too, they're like, they don't want to bring it up yet. I think we've talked about this before. That well, yeah. That- they're afraid to bring it up, but everyone's kind of thinking it, like. The whole I, I was lost. So Brooke, I didn't even I didn't even notice the stuff about the fire being in the tree rather than the bones placed in. I must have just skipped over that because I was too distracted by G. I really want to like Gior, but like he really doesn't get why they burn the bodies. Look I, at John's I, hand. Like he uh, might. Like but again, I'm a little afraid to bring it up or even accept it. But okay, so but why wax philosophical? <laughs> if only this man could talk. The story, fucking, you know the story he's gonna tell you. Don't wax about it. Like, <laughs> leave him behind. Like he, know, I don't, I don't get it. It's, it seems. Yeah, it seems he might like be putting much. on a brave face for the men. Yeah, maybe. I, I don't think he's a total idiot, but he is. Uh, I was yeah. afraid because I, I had a tough time focusing because I was afraid that others were going to attack them at any second. Yeah. In fact, I'm surprised there hasn't been any attacks yet. Yeah. Do you think it's because there's so many people? We know that the others are that far south because they've already taken out Waymar Royce. Well, do but... we? I don't remember. Uh, they, Waymar Royce and, and those three were out for for weeks, right? Tracking these... those wildlings? 
Yeah, and, and these guys have already been out for some time, right? Well, I don't know. I don't actually remember how long they were out. Maybe we don't have timelines, but we, you know, we do have some sort of idea that the others have moved quite south. Yeah. Ooh, I was yeah, scared it's to a, death. It's, a weird it's always thing. in the back I mean, of my mind. It makes you suppose a few things about the others. Are there not many of them? Um, yeah, they feel they can attack a band of 200. Or, yeah, or, or, or are, they, are they nomadic to the point where they stay in a group and move around, and so the chances of you running into them maybe aren't that strong? Or, mm. you know, I've, all sorts of things come into your mind about why they haven't run into them yet. Um, you know, science fiction would have you believe that, that there are these potent, you know, highly sensed, killers that can track whatever maybe you know maybe they're more like animals we don't we don't know anything about them really it's kind of it's kind of interesting yeah for sure certainly the prologue at the beginning of the game of thrones definitely made them come off as just perfect killers yeah so you got to wonder if power of numbers somehow somehow contains a weakness for them right yeah maybe I know. I was afraid for the others too, and then the chapter ended. It was yep. like four pages long. Oh, was a well, very, at least we met Dolores. Said a very tender explanation of why he taught the birds to say Snowbrook. I didn't think of that. Yeah, I thought it was super cute. Just to like tease him and stuff. That's totally what <laughs> what we do to each other. What I do to my other friends. It's well, the yeah, practical touch, person inside of me is like, why don't you teach them something useful? And, <laughs> but but no, I get it. it. They're they're playing with each other. And now we get why Jor is so hard on Sam because he's jealous. <laughs> Gosh, <laughs> the triangle rears its ugly head again. Uh, John does think of Arya in this chapter, just like Arya yeah. thinks of John. Yeah, they do fondly remember each other often. Yeah. Just something to note, I guess. Not important. Well, are we done with John? Probably I'm done this chapter. Okay, well, I'm going to take the last chapter in our reading this week, which was on Arya. I took it because I'm the only one that hasn't had the opportunity to summarize an Arya chapter yet. So <laughs> I'm going to take it. Arya, horse face, underfoot, sticking with the pointy end. Arya, underfoot, horse face, sticking with the pointy end. Uh, so Yorin and company find themselves in a bit of a pickle. Uh, their plan for going around the west side of the God's Eye has been kind of frustrated by a river whose bridges and other crossings have all been destroyed. So, Scad, let's get them uh, Spanish. Saquen sus mapas. Very good. Uh, if you look at the map and you find the God's Eye, it's that kind of lake in the middle of uh, the map labeled the south, if you're looking at it in your book. Um, there's a little river that runs out directly south of it, and that's the river that Yorin's referring to. So they're trying; they're on the east side of that river. They're trying to get to the west side so they can go around and up. Uh, so knowing they can't turn back east and go back towards the King's Road without increasing their chances of getting caught by the Gold Cloaks, they decide to head north where the river meets the God's Eye. So they want to go up where that river is touching the south end of the God's Eye. He knows there's a small village there, and hopefully they can uh, pay for some boats at that village that will take them, instead of going around the God's Eye, they're going to travel on the God's Eye, on the lake, and go up north, uh, eventually landing at Harrenhal. Um, they know that uh, the Went family uh, resides and presides there, 
um, and they've been friends of the watch in the past. Uh, and Yorin, of course, is totally ignorant of the fact that Tywin is currently sitting there listening to his complete uh, discography of the Rolling Stones right now. Um, but they arrive to find the village deserted. There's no boats there, no people there. And although they're slightly discouraged, they decide to pass the night at the village's modest holdfast. Small but sturdy, 10-foot stone walls, a gate, a stable, and even a secret underground tunnel that leads out of the holdfast into the river. So they uh, feel fairly safe. And everyone's fast asleep that night when Arya dreams of a wolf howling, almost as if in warning. Waking up, she doesn't cast off that dream. She actually pays attention to it and alerts everyone that danger is approaching. And sure enough, a group of between 100 and 200 raiders, if we can count our, or if we can uh, trust Arya's counting ability, led by Sarah Amory Lorch and flying under the Lannister banner, approach the holdfast. The raiders order Yorin to open the gates and by doing so, proving that they are friendlies. And ever suspicious, Yorin refuses, uh, probably a smart thing to do. Lorch doesn't take this kindly, and after a bit of an exchange, he orders his men to attack the holdfast. All the recruits, the Night's Watch recruits, join in the defense of the keep, including Arya, Hot Pie, Lamy, and the work of death ensues, with Arya dispatching more than a few of the raiders. She cuts off fingers and does all sorts of great stuff. But it soon becomes apparent, however, that the Watch recruits will not win, and Yorin orders Arya to take as many of the children as she can and escape through that secret tunnel that we mentioned earlier. So gathering up Gendry, Hot Pie, Lamy, and even the little two-year-old girl that they found previously, they race to their escape. Um, the entrance to this tunnel is in a, a barn that is now burning up. So they go into the burning barn where she comes across Jock and Biter and Rorge, who are the, the Night's Watch recruits who are so dangerous they're keeping them chained in a wagon. So while the other children escape into the tunnel, Arya heeds the pleas of the three men for help and runs back outside to grab a hatchet that she'd noticed out there. So she's risking her own life in the process as she's running back out of the fire and then back into the fire that's only growing in intensity and heat. So, you know, blind by the flames and suffocating from the smoke, uh, Arya tosses the hatchet into the wagon of the three men before escaping in the nick of time into the tunnel. And we end the chapter. Oh, from John low intensity to Arya, super crazy intensity. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. When you were when we were finishing up, when we were about halfway through this chapter, did you ever start thinking like, you know, this is just too much for poor old Yoren. This just isn't going to work out. This just isn't going well. I just got this feeling that they were never going to make it. And sure enough, they're not. Yeah, I mean, you can you can point to a sign that's pretty clear. Uh, the reader knows that Yorin is wrong about Lady Went sitting at Harrenhal. Tywin <laughs> sits at Harrenhal. Like his own, even his best hope is mired in inaccuracy. Right? Like it's it's just not going to work out. Yeah. Do you think Yorin's faith in uh, in the neutrality of the Night's Watch? and how they're treated because of their neutrality was a little misplaced and maybe contributed to some of their problems. Yeah, Yorin's blind uh, to, to the state of the country right now. 
he he's following a set of rules that he's been taught to to his defense. I mean, I'm not trying to come down on him, but the don't bother us were the Night's Watches. It's old. Mm. It's 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 not something that really applies right now. Other things take precedent in these times of war, and he can't really he can't really be relying on it like he usually does. And he's blind; to, he doesn't see it. Mm-hmm. Mm. Arya sees it. Arya knows. Her instincts are right again, right? Regard she she's like we shouldn't stay here. She sees it. She, she knows. Yorin, yeah. though, he's he's either too, you know, too experienced and and too used to doing things the way he does them that he doesn't he doesn't really see the threat for what it is right yeah it's like he's trying to almost convince himself that you know there's still somebody out there that respects the night's watch enough to at least leave him alone and that just doesn't happen anymore yeah i mean you you wonder what would have happened if he'd opened the gates um you know would they have seen that there were the night's watch and been okay with it they might they probably would have taken their stuff at least would they have murdered everybody? Nah, I don't know. I think they kind of would have. Uh, I don't know, though. Um, yeah, remembering that Amory Lorch, I don't know if uh, Yorin recognized him or even knew who he was, but we know who he yeah. was. He was uh, one of the men, along with Gregor Clegane, that came into King's Landing and at the end of Robert's Rebellion and participated in uh, killing uh, Rhaegar's children. And I think he was the one that killed uh, the daughter. Rennie's. Correct. Although he was, he was just a toddler yeah, at the time. He was directly ordered to do that. But, right. Um, but, uh, or, or I, th- I think that's the story anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's it, pff, coin flip, maybe. Uh, you know, maybe they would have let him live, maybe not. I can see why Yorin wouldn't have taken that chance. But, right. But, uh, but I, I also just think it seems like battle on the ramparts maybe wasn't the best. Like, put the scout out. Tell him not to blow the horn. Come back and maybe I'll go through the tunnel. It seemed like Yorin kind of did go into a bit of a downward spiral just as things got worse and worse. He didn't quite know how to deal with it. Did you guys, am I being a little too hard on him? You know, by the end he gave orders to, you know, for everyone to do stuff and then he just kind of sat there and sharpened his knife. I I just kind of got the impression that he's kind of running out of ideas here and is starting to despair a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'd say that's accurate. I, th- I think that's fair. I mean, we we talked in the last Aria chapter about how what they're seeing through the land is just kind of beating them all down, and uh, yeah, I think he's I think he's beaten down also. Yeah. Also, just harkening back to the last Aria chapter, he got really passionate over the fact that he's only lost three people in the last thirty years. Like yeah. his track record is really good, and to have it all come crashing down on him so quickly would have probably been super overwhelming, and just he right. wouldn't have the capability to deal with it. Yeah, he's a good dude. I mean, he he's Great he clearly dude. is putting putting everything out there to try to save the people. Like he's talking about selling all the stuff. Like, ah, oh, forget the stuff. Like we just need to get to Harrenhal. That'll get us through most of this warring area. You know, let's just forget the stuff. The wall can do without the stuff. We need to get the people there, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I yeah, I think I, I don't want to give the impression that we're beating up on Yorin because what a great guy and and went down. You know, a hero. Uh, but yeah, it's like, he's done the same thing for 30 years, gotten into a routine. And then all of a sudden there's this huge wrench in the way he's done things. And it's like, what do I, what do I do? Like, can't even handle it. Yeah. How about, uh, how invested you are in the brothers that are defending the wall? 
Oh yeah. Like again, kind of kind of going back to our very first episode where we're talking about how George has made us invested in these three people that he ends up just killing in the very beginning, right? He's given these brothers names. He's given them some of them occupations. He's given them very, very short scenes where they're interacting with the characters and given responsibilities and reporting back and, and all this. And you care about them already. Yep. You care about them already and you don't want them. When I heard about, I think it was his, uh, Dauber, I think it was, that wrestled the guy off the ramparts and Lamy's going to give him a high five because they kill the guy and then he realizes he's got a dagger in his stomach. And you're like, he's no, dead. Dauber, not Dauber. <laughs> Who the hell is Dauber? But you care already. Well done, George. You sure do. <laughs> <laughs> on that fight scene, I loved seeing Arya, you know, she grows up awful fast and she's the first to jump in and chop off some fingers and participate in this, you know, grim work of killing. But you still see this this humanity shining through, you know, like when the kids ganged up on that one soldier and his helmet came off and she noticed how scared he looked and everything before she killed him, like. There's still a lot of humanity in Arya, which is really encouraging and which makes you like her more. Uh, And, of course, the bigger examples of her going back and dragging that little girl along, even though it would seem to only slow them down. Uh, And then, of course, the big example of her going back and getting the axe for the three really dangerous criminals to give them a fighting chance of getting out. Um, Yeah, You know, Mm -hmm. through everything Arya goes through, there's this empathy and compassion and there's heart stuff going on. Yeah. Yeah. That she never seems to lose at least not yet. You brought up the little girl, (laughs) the line of Arya's about the little, cause the little girl's just crying while they're they're all trying to sleep. And Arya's thoughts are, why does she have to cry all the time? (laughs) And I'm reading that and I'm thinking said every parent ever, ever, Oh, maybe it's me just having a two-year-old, but I just my heart just breaks every time I read about this little two-year-old stuck in this situation. Yeah. Oh, no oh. parent at all. Yeah, just give her to somebody who could take care of her, please. Yeah. Um. Let's see. I don't know if there's too much more to talk about in this chapter. I, I think I've I think I've exhausted all my notes. Is there anything else anyone else wants to bring up? Uh, I'm good. Let's move on to Davos After Dark in just a second. First of all, thanks everyone for joining us. Those of you who are dropping off now, we get the feeling that there's not a ton of people that drop off. But uh, if you are, take care. We love you. We'll see you next time. Next time's readings, episode 21, um, include Tyrion's third and fourth chapters, Bran's second, uh, Sansa's second, and Arya's fifth. So she's still leading the pack. That's chapters 15 through 19 of A Clash of Kings. So join us next time for that one. But um, let's move on to Davos After Dark now. Davos After Dark. Okay. Just getting to my Davos notes here. Do you guys Um, realize that we're a fourth of the way through this book already? Yeah, when I saw that we're into the teens of chapters, it's like, oh, we're actually moving through this thing. Look at us go. It's nuts. It seems like it's so slow because we're only reading, you know, five chapters every two weeks. But uh, it does surprise me the progress that we make. I can't believe we made it this far. We made episodes. it through one book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not known for my commitments. 
Uh, all right, Matt, what do you got for us? Uh, I want to talk a little bit, if we can, about Azora High and a little bit about Lightbringer. Um, ideas about that stuff. I'll, I'll tell you one thing that stuck out to me, and then maybe this can kick off the conversation and we can go from there. But uh, a, a statement is made there in the talking about the prophecy of Azora High and Lightbringer that it says, He who clasps the sword shall be Azora High. And my reading of that, my interpretation of that, perhaps wrong, is that maybe it's the sword that's more important than the person. Someone gets their hands on Lightbringer, they become Azora High. Sort of like a, a He-Man sword. Exactly. <laughs> or 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 a uh, sword in the stone where the sword is available but not anyone can remove it mm-hmm. kind of thing. To get your hand really on it and wield it uh, means you are Azora High, right? Right, yes. So I've always thought of Azora High as being the principal power and he wields Lightbringer, but perhaps it's really Lightbringer that's kind of the source of the power. I don't know. I think that's a fair reading. Well, it does have a woman's soul trapped in it, so probably mm. fairly powerful, yes. Yeah, sword itself. Well, that's another thing. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. There are all sorts of theories uh, out there uh, on forums and stuff about Lightbringer and, and, and what or who, yes, who it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't believe that Lightbringer, the sword, the same sword that has Nissa Nissa trapped or, or bind to it, is the new, is the Lightbringer that we're going to see. That Lightbringer is a metaphor uh, or will be a new sword that also has power. Um, kind of a lot of different takes on Lightbringer. So, sorry, I'm, I'm not familiar with these. So some the theories say that a new sword will be created? Well, uh, some people say that Dawn is Lightbringer, um, but they don't, they don't necessarily say that it was the original Lightbringer. Most people, I think, think it is uh, the original Lightbringer. Some people say that the Night's Watch is Lightbringer. Um, as oh. Some people... I, there's, there's all sorts of theories out there. But I came uh, across one. I was... So I, I try to develop my own theories, and now I've moved to trying to vet them against other yeah. theories. So I come up with my own, and then I look up and see what other people have said. And I came across an interesting one that seems to be kind of gaining traction that Davos is yeah. Lightbringer. I was going to bring that one up too. Yeah. Uh, because, How? What? Who? Because, because, well, one of the things I read about it is that Davos is the right hand of the king, and if Stannis is Azor High, then Davos is his sword. Um, there's a there's a passage where Davos' shadow uh, stretches itself long across the painted table of St- in Stannis's war room, uh, like a sword. He actually says, "Like a sword across the continent of Westeros." Um, ah. Yeah, it, it's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, that would work out really well for us. Yeah, <laughs> would be great. Yeah, Davos had that significant a role. Yeah, and they talk well, about. Uh, I think I remember reading about. Um, you know the the Lightbringer. They had kind of three failed attempts. You know, Azora High did when forging Lightbringer, and it's almost like Davos's um, kind of deaths, quote unquote. You know, like after Blackwater when he almost died, and then also when he was presumably killed by Wyman Manderley mm-hmm. um, in later books. Uh, and so there's like there'd be a third one that's going to come later. Um, so yeah, it was an interesting theory, and when I was like, "Hmm, all right, I can maybe buy that," at least give points for uh, um, creativity. 
Yeah. If you're going to be nitpicky, he didn't almost die with the Matterleys. I yeah, mean, they true. faked his death. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I'm going to nitpick this. I, nit- I nitpicked that part, too, when I read it. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't... it's interesting. I, I, like, what? what's the alternative that the sword is buried somewhere and they're going to find it? It's just kind of Melisandre's going to lead them to it somehow. I don't know. It's just it's just interesting. Where, yeah, it's, it's almost frustrating. Sword. Yeah, it's frustrating that it's the possibility that Lightbringer could be a metaphor, that it's not a physical object. It's kind of nice to tie it to a physical object because it can be found. It can be wielded. It can be like, I don't know, it has tangibility. But like when it's sort of ambiguous, I mean, it could be R'hllor for all we know. Ugh, wouldn't that be awful? <laughs> if R'hllor yeah. was real and he was Lightbringer, oh! Well, what what Matt said uh, earlier about, you know, the story could have been told and retold and changed and modified. I mean, maybe there was never even a sword. <laughs> like, it's... Who knows with this stuff? I mean, that story's thousands of years old, right? Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah. That's I'd love it if it were an actual sword. Yeah, me too. A real cool sword with, like, super detailed descriptions of the pommel and hilts and everything. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, sort of jewels embedded in there. I don't know. Of elvish make. <laughs> I was like, you're getting awful Tolkien on us here. I, I went and read... I, <laughs> I went and read... Uh, there's a guy... Uh, a guy. He's, like, a really well-known writer of, of Song of Ice and Fire theories and, and uh, material. I think it's a WordPress that's can't use... C-A-N-T-U-S-E, we'll, we'll link it in the notes, but he writes all sorts of stuff, and he, he wrote a thing about Lightbringer, and don't delude yourself into thinking that Stannis' sword, Lightbringer, is actually Lightbringer, like it's it's all a ruse. Um, we'll link to that uh, article, but I'm with him on that at least. Oh, Stannis, yeah, Stannis sure. doesn't yeah. have it, and uh, oh, yeah. Mel is nowhere close to it. She might be able to lead you to it eventually, maybe she's yeah, no faking question. it. Prop no to question. guy, too, like putting together the evidence against it. But if you didn't pick up that that was yeah. fake, then no, he goes, to, he goes to some lengths, like you said, to, to bring some evidence in and kind of paint all the picture together. It's nice. He even says, he's like, look, I understand everyone probably already believes this, but I just want to, for new readers and stuff, I just want to lay out the case and kind of explain all the evidence and stuff. So, mm. um, it was probably like he was bored on like a Wednesday for a couple hours. He's like, Oh, I'll throw that together. Sure. <laughs> he does tons of stuff really good stuff what would you uh moving on then what what would have happened if balon would have gone on with uh theon's plan could they have taken casterly rock could they have held it hard to say i mean balon seems like well he's never really like successfully rebelled in the past so i'd say no but he also seemed super crazy, so maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, super motivated now. And if he did have Theon with him, who is underhanded and conniving, then maybe. Uh huh. What do you guys think? And I think along with that question, we can throw it out there too. Is uh, one of do you think that if someone else had gone besides Theon, they might have been able to have been better at convincing Balon? I don't, I don't think so. So I've been listening to some Metallica this week. Uh, Metallica, Metallica, what some people call the Black Album. I don't know why that's funny. Uh, Just your your delivery again, so good. 
So they have two two songs on that album. Well, there's tons of great lyrics in that album, uh, but one of them is to secure peace is to prepare for war. This this decision from Balon to go, you know, to go to war against the Starks was decided the day his sons were killed, the day Theon was taken. Mm-hmm. You, they secured peace, and what they really did is guarantee that they were going to have war later. And this is part of you know part of history too. A lot you know a lot part of the part of the history of World War One is that the sanctions that were put on Germany afterward uh, were so hard that there was guarantee that they were going to have to come back and 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 fight again. The sanctions were too much; they were too painful. And similar kind of thing here. Um, they secured their peace after Balin's rebellion, but they were guaranteeing a war. And I don't think it mattered who they sent. There was there was no winning these guys as as uh, Somebody noted. Um, the other one is, you know, their culture is very much just about about taking stuff. The other lyric from Metallica: "Advantages are taken, not handed out." He's not gonna. He would never go to the Castle Lock. Casterly Rock plan because somebody else is offering that. He's got to take it. He can't have something given to him, and that's just their culture. So I, I think on the first thing we talked about, might have worked, but there's no way he'd have gone for it. And the second thing about about could anyone have talked these guys down? I don't think so. That declaration of war was signed, you know, ten years ago when Theon was taken and the other sons were killed. That's yeah, can opinion. you imagine if, yeah, if Cat went? He would have been overjoyed. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, great. A Stark hostage. Excellent. <laughs> like, it would have been too perfect. So it's good yeah. that Theon went over Cat, at least. Yeah, I mean, how do you weigh it? Uh, losing Cat, losing Bran and Rickon and the whole... No- I, who knows? If he'd have sent somebody like Malister, may, maybe that would have been best. I don't know. Mm. I, I don't know. There, I, I, I think there was no winning this. I mean, mm-hmm. these guys are hard men, and they weren't going to compromise, and they weren't going to come come to any terms. What's Ooh. it like to live that like intensely? Seems exhausting. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I just need a nap, guys. I just want to watch just... a football game. <laughs> I just want the internet and to consume. I am intrigued <laughs> by Balin's seal skin, uh, seal skin garb. Kind of interested to see how warm that would be. Want to get yourself a seal skin cloak? Absolutely not. I would never do it. But if the seal were already murdered and somebody else had already done all that, I'd someone be had done the clubbing, see, I'd be interested to see what it felt like to be under them. But no, I'm not. I'm not uh, phrasing. You know, yeah. Where did this phrasing thing yeah. come from? I feel like I live under a fucking rock or something. Somebody said this Archer. to me the other day. What is Archer. this? Oh, Archer. 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 Have you that. not seen Archer? No, I don't watch it. You should really watch that. I'm scared. You Have watch you season the season yet? I finished season five. It's so good. Just five? There's uh, a sixth season, buddy. Yeah, but I've been watching them on Netflix. Okay. Well, you're in for a treat. Season six. Oh, so good. So the new thing in season five is that, or it's not new anymore, but is uh, 
Archer, instead of saying phrasing, he says, so are we not doing phrasing anymore? Are we not saying phrasing? And so anytime that situation comes up, he says, he, he waits for a beat or two. So are we not doing phrasing anymore? God damn it! Who the hell drilled my box? So we're just done with phrasing, right? That's not a thing anymore? <laughs> your, your Archer impression is pretty good. I've been working on it. Yeah, good job. It's, <laughs> it's almost as good as your Orlando Bloom. Hey. Your Orlando Bloom is like phenomenal. Professional. As good as my Sean as my, as my uh, Sean Bean. Or it's better or than Orlando himself. Or I was listening back to a previous episode. It's almost as good as Scott's Swedish Sansa. Oh, you guys remember that? <laughs> <laughs> um anyways, I, I wonder if there are any theories or f- like future references with the seal skin to like selkie lore i'd be Mm. personally interested in looking into that i don't actually want to talk about right now because i feel like it's going to be boring but interesting i'm gonna let you take that one on i don't even know what word you just said report back okay so in like gaelic lore there's lots of legends of seals who come up onto land and shed their skin and become beautiful women and if you catch the skin that she leaves behind, you enslave that woman, and she's called a selkie. And it's uh, like the exact the whole... opposite of Kevin Smith's recent horror film. Oh, Tusk. <laughs> Tusk. Oh, I haven't seen it. You don't. I mean, anyway. I loved it, but it's great. I probably won't. Yeah, Actually, I you yeah, probably I might. won't. Yeah. Right. As, as I've said before, I like I like Kevin Smith films. I loved Zach and Mary make a porno. I thought it was hilarious. And and his earlier stuff, of course, Small Rats classic. But uh, him himself? Ooh. Watch yourself, Leave that Brooke. at the side of the road. <laughs> Watch <laughs> yourself. Uh, this will else? probably come up in a later Davos After Dark. But I think it's fun to talk about here, especially since we don't have a lot to go on with the, the John chapter this this episode. But what really happened to Benjamin Stark? Where is he? Is he cold hands? Um, is he dead? Is he somewhere yeah, else? I feel like, like this is like a common fandom discussion, but we've never really had it. We've never had it. My it's... Well, my stance is that he can't be cold hands because Bran would have recognized him. Right. Yeah, there's a whole host of reasons he can't be cold hands. There's some people that hang on to it, but the general consensus uh, is that he is not. And is moving towards that I'll, now. I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to spoil this. We know he's not. It's 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 been said in uncovered notes that he's not. What? What, like, George has said he's not? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't going to go there, Scat. But Sorry. Well, we can edit done. it out if you want to. No, go. Let's go. Let's just dive in. It's this is Davos After Dark. It's it's literally a note in his in his manuscript to his editor that got published online that says the editor writes in, in the margin, I think this is Benjen, and he writes, no. <laughs> so, huh. so... Uh, Actually, it's good to have a definitive answer. Yeah, uh, we, now we uh, can move on. We can edit it out <laughs> yeah. if you guys want. It is kind of spoilery, even beyond the books. But uh, the general consensus is that he wasn't anyway. There's just too many things, you know, that that don't add up. He still could be, I suppose. Well, taking out the thing that George said, but uh, yeah, it, it certainly seems he's not. The biggest evidence to me is Leaf saying to Bran that Cold Hands had died. 
a long, long time ago, or he'd been dead a long time. I don't remember the yeah. exact. And you, you know, have so to assume that the children of the forest have no sense of time, or right. Or, so, or like two really years explanations would, would seem like a very short amount of time yeah. <laughs> to but a child, it, child of the forest. Yeah, it does lay out the possibility that Benjamin could become Cold Hands esque, like whatever Cold Hands is, like half mm. white, half yeah. sensical human. Yeah. So then the question is, is would George, who's very good at um, giving a definitive end to characters that he wants dead, uh, would is he, he good at it? Is he dead or <laughs> is he alive somewhere? Uh, I think it'd be it great seems if he like, were just dead. And, and maybe he'll do that to us. And I think he is, Brooke, to answer your question. When... When George wants someone dead, he makes sure we know they are dead. You know, he puts, he sews Grey Wind's head to Rob's corpse. So we just know there is no chance of of Rob Stark coming back. He is dead. There, uh, but there then are still I, deniers out there that think at... Grey Wind's alive. <laughs> I don't. I but think then, Grey Wind is dead. Uh, well, but, look at, look at, uh, but like Sandor Clegane bleeding out against a tree. Brienne being hung. John being stabbed. Right. Um, yeah. That's like, to my point. If, okay. if if he doesn't, if you don't actually see the the wolf's head on the human corpse, if you don't actually have a POV seeing that, you can't trust that that person is really dead. Okay. George like Seriously. definitively gives it to you when someone is actually dead. If he doesn't, he's going to leave like little loopholes like he does, like the examples that you mentioned. Okay. Yes. Okay, good. I'm glad we're on the same train. Yeah, I would really love if, if Benjamin Stark was still alive. I think he's a very cool character um, just from the little bits that we've seen of him. I, he kind of reminds me of Brendan Blackfish in that he's like the cool uncle. I want to see all <laughs> cool uncles survive. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, maybe he comes back. It, it just seems weird because you'd wonder ro- what role he'd play if he came back. I don't know. Or like Scott said, maybe he's just dead. I just think it'd be great for all the people that spend a ton of time on theories <laughs> that he just ended up being dead. And they're like, oh, that sucks. I wrote this whole thing. and no, okay. So mean. I have malice in my heart, Brooke, that can't be measured. No kidding. Oh, God, that was better. <laughs> just because you can't come up with one scad. Oh, I'm yeah. just teasing. You've come up with plenty of good stuff. I don't do any of my own original work. <laughs> oh um let's see here maybe a couple more things um yeah why not with namiria and the wolf stuff in aria's chapter i thought yeah. that was interesting i i think scott you may have mentioned in another place that uh you thought it was her warging and i thought that was an interesting take on it warging yeah. without maybe knowing she's warging also, another song on Metallica Metallica of Wolf and Man. Awesome. Yes. It's basically like Warging. You should listen to it, guys. Mm. It's awesome. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it seems to me like she gets in Nymeria's head. She hears something that tips her off that soldiers are coming. And she wakes up. And she's like, there are soldiers. She's like, there's something else. It's not just the wolf. There's something else. Wake up. And then they come. Right? It's, mm. It seems to me like, yeah. She warged, and I don't know that she knows it, but she got some sort of sign that they were coming. That's how I read it. Because yeah. mm, I didn't. I just thought that she heard it, which might go to her heightened senses of of some form or another, but not that she actually warged into 
a wolf. I'll find the passage. Uh, I yeah, we've got it here somewhere. But yeah. Move on, I'll find it. Okay. Aerie has wolves in his head. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Lommy, we haven't given you enough credit, buddy. Good call. <laughs> oh, that would be funny. All right. Uh, is there anything else you guys wanted to cover? I know Scad's looking for that passage. Yeah, I found the area. Right. Yeah, so, so there's all the stuff about it was a wolf, it was a wolf, it was a wolf. Then the last part before before they actually find out it is people, she says it was a wolf. She shouted at them as she yanked on her second boot. Something's wrong. Someone's coming. Get up. Mm-hmm. So it's not just that she heard a wolf. It's that howling. It's that as the wolf, she heard someone else coming or knew that they were coming, smelled right. them coming, something. Right? That's an interesting take. Yeah, I'll give you that one. Yeah. Um, anything you want to cover? The only thing we didn't cover in Davos After Dark was Danny's chapter. Anything you wanted to cover from there? So, Quaith. Yeah. It's like a, yeah, a mysterious character. I will admit I forgot about her. Yeah, she's easy to forget about. Yeah. I didn't forget about her. I blocked her out. <laughs> it's, it's all, sometimes I just get weary of, of the prophecy and all the, you know, all the signs and everything. And so every time she pops up, it's all about prophecy and everything. And I'm just like, yeah, just get, just get out of the way. It's a terrible <laughs> thing to admit. And then I promise our readers, I will not do that this time. But yeah, I, her end game. What is, what's going on? I don't know. You guys have ideas? Well, if you no use, yeah, those three as sort of a foil for the three wise men. What three? Which is how I, th- I think of them. Piat Pri, Quaith, oh, yeah. Zaro, Zohan, Doxos. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I don't have anything actually, but <laughs> she's a wise man. So I saw probably I saw a lot ahead. of weird Christianity stuff in that chapter. Actually, her walking through the red waste reminded me of Moses. Yeah, and then it's yeah, it's I don't know. Yeah, hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, what is she up to? Like, is she just kind of a vessel for getting Danny to? A place where George wants her to go. She's like Melisander, right? Know. She's a, isn't she a shadow? She's a shadow binder, right? She's from a shy. Shy, yeah. Yeah. So we don't know a lot about her other than that. I don't even know if she's a shadow binder, in particular. Hmm. I did take a look at her on the wiki of Ice and Fire. Right. She's a shadow binder, but she apparently in all of the books never brings up her lore. That's right. Which is interesting. But I don't know what its significance is. Yeah, what is she hiding? I immediately mm. don't trust her. Yeah, it's like a little on the nose that she's always wearing a mask. So maybe she isn't overtly hiding anything. All right, you guys <laughs> accuse me of never having my own theories. Quaith is Benjamin. Bam! <laughs> <sighs> it's all coming together. Oh, you nailed it. One, you accused yourself of never having your own theories. Uh, two, I love it. Let's roll with it. All right. <laughs> One of our followers had their own theory. Uh, <laughs> Chase Trunot. Crazy theory. What is it, Matt? I think you uh, were yes. following on this. Yes. Um, yeah, he brought it up to us on Twitter, and I thought it was at least interesting and intriguing. Uh, he posited that 
Mary Maz Dur somehow was able to kind of third-person warg Drogo into Drogon, so that there's some essence of Cal Drogo inside of Drogon. Um, it got me thinking of, you know, whether it's true or not, if maybe some of the essence of some of these people that died do live on in the dragons. I thought particularly of maybe little Rago inside of Rhaegal or something like that. So, I don't know. Crazy. Interesting thing to consider, at least. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, like, the idea that all that ululating whales were actually some sort of spell that, that moved part of Drogo into Drogon? That's interesting. Crazy Perhaps, things. yeah. Crazy oh, things. yeah, that's when she would have done it while she's burning. I don't know why she would do it. Yeah. <laughs> there a motive for her doing that? I don't know. Some but... people, when they're like they're on their last well, legs, they're just like, did, I gotta do She something. would have put herself in one of the dragons. Good point. Yeah, and, and that's a good point, Brooke, of which... Uh, you know, if we took the three that died in Danny's interpretation, she'd have to be Viserion. You know, Rago, I can see instead of Rhaegal. Yeah. yeah, she'd have to be inside Viserion, but I don't know. Interesting. It's well, not interesting to think about yeah, if the essence the of these people yeah, live on inside, inside of, of dragons, dragons and stuff. So. All right, should we uh, should we call it for the night? Thanks everyone for joining us. We'll see you in two weeks. This is Brooke signing off, saying good night to all of Matt's wives. <laughs> oh God. This is Matt reminding you that Goonies never say die. Sloth love chunk. Uh, <laughs> so in keeping with my theme of Metallica and keeping with the religious theme from the song Holier Than Thou, arrogance and ignorance go hand in hand. Good night, my friends. Good night, everyone. Night. There's a destination a little up the road from the habitations of the towns we know. A place we saw the lights turn low, the jigsaw jazz in the jet fresh flow. Pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts, two turntables and a microphone. Bottles and cans that just clap your hands or just clap your hands. I don't even count the, the Theon, the, the drowned god as god. That's just like <laughs> the most angry, pissed off god ever. That's not god, that's just like bitterness at life. Are you They're kidding god. me? That is the most most realistic comparison to like a Christian god there is. The drowned oh, god? Come now. No way. Come on. Maybe like a Catholic god. Some people's interpretations, sure. <laughs> Mileage may my vary. God, Mileage may not vary. My god. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, it's good to talk to you guys. This is Matt saying, uh, Goonies never die. Goonies oh, never I messed say it up. Die. Goonies never say die. Damn it. Try it. <laughs> they Take sure two. do die. Take two. <laughs>